Jesus in the Desert, Marriage Feast, First Patch, Part 11, Jesus in Sunem, Ulama, and Capernaum. In the evening, Jesus went through Jezreel, and about three hours further to Sunem, an open place on a hill. Some of the disciples had gone on before in order to make arrangements with the landlord of the inn at the entrance of the city. The fertile valley through which Jesus had just passed lay to the south of Jezreel. He went through a part of Jezreel without attracting notice, and then turned northward toward Sunem. Near this city, that is at a distance of one to two hours, are two others, one of which Jesus had passed on his way from Kisloth Tabor to Jezreel. The inhabitants of Sunem depended upon weaving for their livelihood. They wove narrow edging of twisted silk, plain or interspersed with flowers. Sunem did not lie in the Vale of Esdralon, but rather where the mountains took their rise. The multitude that here pressed around Jesus was simply astonishing, and it was ever on the increase. The people surrounded him everywhere, cast themselves down before him, crying and shouting that a new prophet had arisen, one sent by God. Many were sincere in their acclamations, but others followed through curiosity and shouted merely to swell the noise. The crowd was so dense that it was almost like an insurrection, and because here in Galilee the excitement was daily increasing, Jesus resolved soon to leave it. Sudom was the native city of the beautiful Abisag, who had served David in his old age. Lysias also had an inn here, in which he frequently stopped, and in which he had recalled the dead son of his hostess to life. A vision of the same was vouchsafed me, that I might know the place. The city possessed also a free inn for certain travelers. It had been founded as a memorial of Lysias. I know not, however, whether it was the house that the prophet once occupied, or whether it was another built upon the same site. Jesus taught on this day in the synagogue and visited many of the houses to console and cure the sick. Sunem was built rather irregularly, around a hill whose summit overlooked the city. A road led up the hill. The houses upon it decreased in size with the ascent, the highest being mere huts. The top of the hill was crowned by an open space, upon which stood a teacher's seat. It was surrounded by palings over which an awning could be stretched for protection from the sun. When Jesus, on the morning of the following day, started with his disciples for the teacher's chair, the whole place was alive with excitement. They had brought numbers of sick and litters, and had placed them all along the road leading up the hill. Jesus ascended through the clamoring multitude, healing as he went. The people had mounted to the roofs, the better to see and hear all that he would do and say. From the teacher's chair, on the top of the hill, the view was magnificent, stretching off toward Tabor. Jesus invaded against the pride and presumption of the Sunamites, who, instead of being converted, doing penance, and keeping the commandments of God, broke forth into vain shouts over the prophet that had come among them, the sent from God, for they attributed his coming as an honor to their own merit whereas he had come in order to convince them of their sins. About three in the afternoon, Jesus left Sunem. Taking a northerly direction, he reached in about three hours a large and closely built city with a less ancient appearance than Sunem. 
It was enclosed by walls so broad that trees flourished upon them. The city was called Ulama, and was about five hours southeast of Tabor. Arbella was about two hours to the north. The rough roads of the surrounding mountains were covered with sharp white pebbles, on which account there were made in Ulama numbers of souls to bind as a protection under the feet. The city was built on a mountain, surrounded by other mountains, and an altogether impassable region. Vines covered those mountains from base to summit. I have seen upon the plants as high as a tree, their tangled branches as thick as one's arm. They produce large, piriform fruits like gourds, and from them flasks are made. Ulama did not appear so old as other cities. Indeed, there was something about it that even made it look unfinished. The inhabitants did not bear the stamp of old Jewish simplicity. They appeared to be aiming at greater culture and refinement. It was as if the Romans or some other nation had formerly sojourned among them. Here, as elsewhere, the concourse of people was very great, for they knew that Jesus was about to celebrate the Sabbath in Ulama. Several of the disciples had rejoined Jesus, among them Peter's half-brother Jonathan and the sons of the widows. They numbered in all twenty, Peter, Andrew, John, James the Less, Nathaniel Chasen, and Nathaniel the bridegroom had also come. Jesus had directed them to do so, that they might hear his instructions and assist him in his ministrations to the sick, rendered difficult by the turbulence of the multitude. The people had found out the way by which Jesus was to come, and they went forth to welcome him, carrying green branches and strewing leaves. They had stretched across the road long strips of stuff which they lowered for him to step over, while shouts of joy proclaimed the advent of the prophet. The chief officers of the place maintained order and formally saluted Jesus in the name of the city. There were in Ulama many possessed, who clamored violently after Jesus and shouted his name, but he commanded them to be silent. A note about the gourd. Probably a large species of bottle gourd, the calabash, not known to Sister Emmerich. Our supposition is confirmed by her words. It forms no real wood. End note. Even at the inn, they allowed him no rest. They ran about raging and screaming, until he again ordered them to be silent and had them removed. Alama had three schools, one of jurisprudence, another for youths, and the third, the synagogue. Jesus entered different houses to cure and to console. Then he taught in the school, speaking especially upon simplicity and other respect due to parents. For in both of these particulars, the people of this place were wanting. He rebuked them severely also for their pride. Vain at the thought of a prophet's coming among them, they were by their presumption depriving themselves of the benefits attached to these days of penance and instruction. The Sabbath over, the distinguished men of the place gave Jesus an entertainment in the grand public hall. The apostles and disciples that had gone home limited themselves to a mere visit to their relatives. They then called upon Mary, with whom the holy women were becoming more and more intimate. The Baptist was still in the same place, his followers constantly diminishing. Herod had several times been to see him, and had frequently sent his officers for the same purpose. 
At nine o'clock on the morning of the Sabbath, Jesus went with his disciples to a mountain along which was a pleasure garden or bathing place, about a quarter of an hour from the city. The garden was almost as large as the cemetery of Dulman. Note on Dulman, the little town in which Sister Emmerich's last years were spent. End note. It had pavilions and little summer houses, a beautiful fountain, and a place for instruction. Jesus had directed the sick, of whom there were numbers, to be transported thither from the city, for he could not, on account of the crowd, cure in the latter place. The disciples busied themselves in the maintenance of order, and the sick on their litters were placed around under tents and in the pavilions. The crowds that followed from the city were so great that many could not even reach the garden. The magistrates and priests also kept order. Jesus passed from litter to litter, curing many. When I say I generally mean about thirty, or I mean about ten. Jesus taught and alluded to the death of Moses, whose anniversary would soon be celebrated by a fast day, when their food already cooked would be placed under the ashes, and when they would eat, as was usual on such days, a particular kind of bread. He also referred to the promised land and its fertility, which was to be understood not only of the material sustenance of the body, but also of the spiritual nourishment of the soul, for it was also fruitful in prophets and oracles from God, the fruit of which would be penance and the salvation promised to all that would embrace it. The instruction ended. I saw Jesus going into a building nearby wherein the possessed had been assembled. He entered to find them raging and shouting, they were, for the most part, young people, some of them only children. Jesus caused them to be placed in a row, commanded silence, and with one word freed them from the evil spirit. Some of them fell fainting. The parents and friends were present. To all, Jesus addressed some words of exhortation and instruction. After Jesus had taught in the synagogue, he left the city unnoticed, the disciples having gone before him. He knew how to manage that. Without entering any of the cities on the way, they proceeded toward Capernaum. Jesus was about to leave Galilee on account of the great excitement there prevailing. He traveled with the disciples the livelong night and arrived at his mother's in the morning. Peter's wife and sister were there, also the bride of Cana and other women. The house that Mary occupied here was for the most part like its neighbors and very roomy. She was never alone. The widows lived nearby, and the women from Bethsaida and Capernaum, between which these houses were, gathered around her, as also one or the other of the disciples. I saw them keeping the fast with signs of mourning, the women being veiled. Jesus taught in the synagogue of Capernaum, the disciples and holy women being present. Capernaum was situated, measuring in a straight line over the mountain, about one hour from the Sea of Galilee but two hours if one went through the valley and through Bethsaida on the south. About a good half hour on the road from Capernaum to Bethsaida were the houses, and one of which Mary dwelt. A beautiful stream flows from Capernaum to the lake. Near Bethsaida it branched off into several arms, rendering the land very fruitful. Mary conducted no household. She owned neither cattle nor fields. She lived as a widow upon the gifts of her friends, engaged in spinning, sewing, knitting with little wooden needles, praying, consoling, 
and instructing the other women. Jesus, on the day of his arrival, had a private interview with his mother. She wept over the great danger threatening him, on account of the excitement everywhere produced by his teachings and miracles. For she had been informed of all the murmurs and calumnies uttered against him by those that would not presume to say them to his face. But Jesus told her that his time was come, that he would soon leave those parts and go down to Judea, where, after the posh, still greater vexation would arise on his account. That evening there began in Capernaum a feast of thanksgiving for rain. The synagogue and other public buildings were gaily ornamented, with young green trees and pyramids of foliage, while from the galleries on the roof of the synagogue and other large edifices a wonderful many-toned instrument was sounded. The servants of the synagogue, people like our sextons, played on it, it looked like a bag about four feet in length, in which were several pipes and trumpet mouthpieces. When the bag was not distended with wind, those pipes and tubes lay together, one upon another. But when it was inflated by the breath of a man blowing into one of the mouthpieces, two other men raised it up, and either by blowing the breath, or by means of a bellows, introduced air into it. Then by opening and closing the different valves of the pipes, which arose in several directions, a shrill-sounding, many-voiced tone was produced, though standing at the side of the instrument blew into it at certain intervals. Jesus delivered in the synagogue an extremely touching discourse upon rain and drought. In it he told of Elias, who prayed on Mount Carmel for rain, and six times questioned his servant as to what he saw. The seventh time a servant replied that he saw a little cloud rising out of the sea, became larger and larger, until at last it bore rain to the whole country. Then Elias journeyed through the whole land. Jesus applied those seven questionings of Elias to the space of time before the fulfillment of the promise. The cloud he explained as a symbol of the present, and the rain as an image of the coming of the Messiah, whose teaching should spread everywhere and bear new life to all. Whoever thirsted should now drink, and whoever had prepared his field should now receive rain. This was said so touchingly, so impressively, that all his hearers, as well as Mary and the other holy women, wept. The people of Capernaum were at that time very well disposed. There were three priests attached to the synagogue, and near it was the house in which they dwelt. Jesus and his intimate disciples often took their meals with them, for a certain degree of hospitality was always extended to the teacher who had taught in the synagogue. That evening and early the next morning, I heard them playing again on that wonderful instrument. The feast was celebrated all the next day, but only by the children and young people, who enjoyed themselves heartily. The evening of the feast, Jesus took leave of the disciples related to him, as also those from Bethsaida, because early the next day he was to depart from Capernaum and go down into Judea. He took with him only about twelve, those from Nazareth, those from Jerusalem, and those that had come from John. Part 12. Jesus and Dothane and Sephorus. From a distance, he helps the shipwrecked. After the Feast of Thanksgiving, Jesus, with about twelve disciples, traveled in a southeasterly direction from Capernaum, as if between Cana and Sephorus. Mary and eight of the holy women, among them Mary Cleophas, the three widows, the bride of Cana, and Peter's sister, 
accompanied him to a little city where they took a meal together and then parted from him. In the neighborhood of this place was the pit into which Joseph was cast by his brethren. The place was called Dothane. But there was another and a much larger Dothane in the Vale of Esdralon, about four hours to the north of Samaria. This Dothane was a little place, and the people lived chiefly by providing for the wants of the merchants traveling through their city. It lay at the end of a little valley, large enough to afford pasturage for about eighty head of cattle. The other side stood that great building in which Jesus had once calmed the possessed. This time he did not enter. Dothane is an hour and a half northeast of Sephorus, and between four and five hours from Mount Tabor. The disciples had gone on before to prepare the inn. About eight men, some of them priests, came out to meet Jesus and the holy women and escort them to the public hall of entertainment. No one lived in it, but already everything was prepared for a repast. Before the entrance, there was spread in honor of Jesus a carpet upon which he had to walk. They washed his feet. The woman ate apart, back of the fireplace. Jesus and the disciples reclined at table and partook of only cold viands, such as little rolls and honey, green salad steeped in sauce and fruits. Their drink was water mixed with balsam. A little flasks of the same were presented to Jesus and the women to take away with them. The priests from the city remained standing during the repast and served the guests with uncommon love and humility, while Jesus spoke of Joseph, who had here been sold. It was an indescribably touching scene. I could not restrain my tears. It appeared to me so strange that I should behold it so near to me, and yet could not enter as I longed to do. I wanted to do this and that, but I could not. Immediately after the repast, the holy woman departed for Capernaum. Jesus took leave of his mother in private, and then bade goodbye to the others. I have remarked that, when alone, Jesus always embraced his mother on his arrival or departure. But before others, he merely extended his hand or inclined his head. Mary wept. She was still very youthful-looking, tall and delicately built. Her forehead was very high, her nose rather long, her eyes very large and mildly downcast, her lips of a beautiful red, her complexion rather dark, but beautiful, and her cheeks lightly tinged with the color of the rose. Jesus tarried a while longer, teaching in the sun, and the men, who would accept no remuneration for the repast, accompanied him on his departure as far as Joseph's well, which was at that time not such as it was when Joseph was let down into it. Then it was only an empty pit, its mouth surrounded by green bushes and vines, but now it was a spacious four-cornered reservoir, like a little pool, under a roof supported by pillars. It was full of water, and in it was kept an abundance of fish. A sum that lifted their heads up so curiously, not pointed like those we see. But they were not so large as similar ones in the Sea of Galilee. There was no visible supply of water to the well. There was a fence around it, and it was guarded by people living near. Jesus entered the spring house with his companions. The whole way he had taught of Joseph and his brethren, and he continued the same discourse at the well, which I saw him blessing as he left. His escort now returned to the Thame, while he and his disciples went on for about a good hour to Sephorus, where he stopped with the sons of Anne's sister. Sephorus was built on a mountain in the midst of mountains. It was larger than Capernaum, 
and there were many separate residences standing around in the environs. Jesus was not very well received by the doctors of the synagogue, and I heard wicked people, of whom there were many in this city, calumniating, saying that he was wandering about instead of staying with his mother. Jesus performed no cures here, and held himself very much aloof. Still, on the Sabbath he preached in the synagogue, and went to an inn nearby for his meals. He visited many private individuals and families, principally Asinians, however, whom he exhorted and consoled, for many of the wicked inhabitants ridiculed and slandered them, on account of their affectation for him. Jesus told several of those that lived in the environs, as also some of his own relatives, not to follow him just then, but to remain his friends in secret, and to continue their good works until the end of his career. His relatives did much good here, and contributed also to the support of the Blessed Virgin, to whom they sent all kinds of necessaries. I saw Jesus conversing with these different families, in so affectionate and intimate a way, that I have no words to describe it. His deportment, so full of love, touched me to tears. That night I saw something else that appeared to me surprising and inexpressibly affecting. There happened on that night a great windstorm in the Holy Land, and I saw Jesus with many others in prayer. He prayed with outstretched hands that danger might be averted. Then I had a glance at the Sea of Galilee, which was lashed by the tempest, the ships of Peter, Andrew, and Zebedee being in distress. The apostles were, as I saw, asleep in Bithynia, their servants alone being on the ships. And lo, as Jesus stood praying, I saw an apparition of him there upon the ships, now on one, now on the other, and then again upon the raging billows. It was as if he were laboring among them, holding back the vessels, warding off the danger. He was not there in person, for they did not see him going. But he stood above the sufferers, he hovered on the waves. The sailors did not see him, for it was his spirit assisting them in prayer. Nobody knew anything about his being there, though he was really helping them. Perhaps the sailors believed in him and called on him for help.